Hi there, and lovely to have you along with me, Cleanna Nianlun, for another Spoken Stories podcast. This collection is called Spoken Stories Creatures of the Earth, after the title of a story and a collection of stories by John McGahern. Previously, Spoken Stories won Independence, had writers think about what independence could mean, how it could present itself in a new story today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. John McGarton often referred to the fact that his own parents had experienced at first hand that War of Independence, its turbulence, its repercussions, and how McGarton's generation was the first born into independent Ireland. And so, in its way, Spoken Stories Creatures of the Earth is a natural expansion on its predecessor, Spoken Stories Independence. This writing is a creative contribution to Ireland's decade of centenaries. Together, the stories illustrate how variously ideas can be interpreted. Here now is Belinda McKeown about her story, Takugama. When I went back to the stories, the one that caught my attention was Sierra Leone, which is the story set on the night of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but set in Dublin, where two people come together and become lovers out of the fear of you know, being obliterated by nuclear bombs. And um, that story really affected me when I, was, when I first read it so 25 years ago. I thought it was so profound, and it is very profound. And of course, when I went back to it this time, I saw it completely differently, and I, saw a lot of, I read it in a different way. Um, it's still really kind of relevant, but what I found when I looked back at the story um, were these themes of the obligation to go home, you know, the pull of home, and the freedom, the difference between the pull of home and the freedom to, to go away, the freedom to, to escape. And that, you know, thinking about Sierra Leone then brought me to the story, the real story of a chimpanzee reserve in Sierra Leone, which after some mulling and thinking and just noodling around with the idea, gave me a character who was a, a vet and her sister, who was a poet, and they're based in two different places. And they're both feeling that very McGahern-esque pull of the family farm, but in a different way. I wanted to write about the process of a cow birthing a calf. Or maybe I didn't want to write about that, but once it showed up, I realised I wanted to really write it, as in name the parts, name the process, and not be elusive or euphemistic about the physical experience that the animal is going through and that the human is guiding them through. So it just became a story about the the body of a cow in in lots of ways and the experience of the woman who's with her at the time of the calving. Belinda McKeown. And now, Charlene McKenna reads Takugama by Belinda McKeown. On the phone was Mel Murphy, the vet, who it seemed spoke entirely in euphemisms. How long, he asked, had the cow been unsure of herself? How long had she been walking the land? Was she making any kind of offer? Any offer at all? Was she stretched? Yes, she's stretched on the ground, Kate said, looking down at the animal crashed on her side, her enormous stomach slung forward, her udder a trapped balloon between her rigid hind legs, stretched in... Herself, the vet said. Just delicately enough for Kate to understand that he must, at long last, be talking about the vulva, of which he had skilfully avoided mention for the entire conversation so far. 
And now look, he had her doing the same thing, hesitating to say to him the word vulva, this cow's vulva, even though what was facing her as she crouched in the bog field was unquestionably a vulva, black and pendulous, scrunched and wrinkled and scruffy like the head of a pug. Do you mean, Kate said, is she dilated? Is that what you mean? Any sign of her? No, Kate said. No, there's no sign of her. There's no stretch on her. I don't know how long she's been walking the land. She's just lying here, collapsed around her bump like a, like a dislocated camel. Camel, huh? Mel Murphy said, almost admiringly. Almost admiringly. Can you get here? Kate said. In front of her, the cow shuddered, as though dreading the thought of him. But the cow needn't have worried, because Mel Murphy was booked up the whole day with cattle tests. And no, he didn't have an assistant vet at the present time. And anyway... Her father's herd had always been the kind to manage the calving by themselves, so he was sure that if Kate just left the animal to her business, she would be fine. She didn't look fine. Also, this was no longer her father's herd. But, and anyway, Murphy was saying. And Kate knew what was coming next, so much so that she almost mouthed it along with him. Anyway, Hadn't Kate a sister a vet? Couldn't she call up her sister, the vet? My sister works with chimpanzees, not cattle, Kate started to say but left off. There was no point. The woman that saved the monkeys, Mel Murphy said with wonder. Wasn't that the best ever you heard? I have to go, said Kate, and hung up. What Kate's sister Claire and her colleagues had done for the western chimpanzee population at the Takagama Reserve was nothing short of miraculous. The western chimpanzee was, to put it bluntly, already fucked. It had declined by over 80% in less than 20 years because of deforestation and urbanisation and mineral gouging and poachers who killed the animals for bushmeat or trafficked them as pets. In Takugama, on 8,000 acres of rainforest, a hundred or so western chimpanzees lived in safety, rescued from the brutality of the larger Sierra Leonean jungle, until one day they began to sicken. They would not eat. They began to seize and stagger. And they died. They would linger or they would just drop, but they were dying. They were being wiped out in this place to which they had been brought so they might not be wiped out. It took more than a year for Claire and her team to get permits to bring samples out of Sierra Leone and over to their lab in Michigan. Claire herself had accompanied the samples on the eventual race to the airport by taxi, by ferry, by foot, and it had been Claire who had performed the genome sequencing 
which had identified the bacterium causing all the trouble. It's shaped like a four-leaf clover, she had texted Kate that weekend, sending a screenshot of what looked like purple ink stains on a shirt pocket, but was, in fact, the disease which had been killing the chimpanzees off. Cool, Kate had replied. Dad had a stroke. The three dots of Claire typing a reply came and went like a flicker on an ultrasound. Typing. Not typing. Typing. Not typing. Typing. Not typing. Not typing. Are you going to say anything? Kate texted her later that evening. This time, not even the dots. She's not a cow. She's a heifer, her mother had said. Spat, when Kate had called her earlier that morning. Her mother was in Donegal this weekend, on a trip organised by a carer's charity so that she could get a few days away, with nursing cover provided for the patient while she was gone. Obviously, this meant that Kate had been ordered down from Dublin, because what if the nursing cover person, you mean the nurse, mother, Kate had said, you mean the professional nurse? What if this professional nurse turned out to be incompetent or untrustworthy? Or, worst of all, what if they turned out to be local? Someone from the area who would snoop around the house and spread gossip about all the ways in which Kate's father was not being properly cared for. No. Kate needed to come down in case she was needed. And now look, now look how much she was needed. This triumphant note from Kate's mother was followed by intense speculation, along the lines of what was these days termed slut-shaming, about how the heifer of the moment had managed to get out of the bog field, find a bull, get herself in calf, and then hide her pregnancy all through the calving season and well into the summer, under that pelt, the maroon shade of a school uniform. Although Kate's mother had not said that bit. That was just Kate's brain, starting up on a poem. Her brain did that still, all the time, though it had been instructed to stop, for her own sake, for the sake of her mental health, and for her chances of ever, ever, living in a place that was not either basically a bedsit or the home of her elderly parents. Kate had come to the decision that the poetry, the poem writing, the poem dreaming, was to be a thing of the past, and that the future was something techy. She was taking an online boot camp in UX design. It had cost more than she could bear to think about, but it was an investment. This time next year, she'd be consulting on the optimal placement for sliders on some yakety app that connected... She didn't know. Hapless visiting farm daughters with vets who were not total chancers? Vet, she could call it. V-E-T-T. But when you used it like that, as a verb, 
Was it spelled with one T or two? She took her phone out to look it up, only to find a text springing into her hand, fresh from Claire in Michigan. Mother says you need me, should I call? Their mother, trying to matchmake between them yet again, but you were so close as girls, she was always saying, which simply was not true. They had always kind of loathed each other, unless you took it in terms of their closeness and age, which, at six years, wasn't even that close. Kate was Gen X, young Gen X, and Claire was an elder millennial. Oh, that rubbish, their mother said, when Kate put it like that, and the irritation was usually enough to forestall her, to prevent any further brokerage attempts for a while. As far as their mother was concerned, Claire had been locked in the lab all that weekend of the stroke, away from phone coverage, away from Wi-Fi, as though any lab, let alone a lab dedicated to genome sequencing in a race against the extinction of an entire subspecies, would be located in a digital blind spot. But that was what Claire had said a few days afterwards. Their mother had understood completely. Of course she understood. Kate had heard her reassuring Claire. Claire had been so busy finding the little germ and it was going to be all over the newspapers and the radio that Claire Locke from Kilfahi had been the one to recognise the little germ. And anyway, the patient was comfortable and would be back to himself in a few days probably. And anyway, didn't they have Kate? Sure, Kate wasn't doing anything crucial in Dublin. That was the great advantage of being freelance. That you could always move things around for a few days. Or a few months. As that stay actually turned out to be. Leave! Claire had texted her. Eventually. After probably the hundredth passive-aggressive text sent by Kate. Pack your bags and go back to Dublin. They'll manage. They're not managing, Kate texted. You're not here. You don't see them. Damn right I'm not there. The reply came so rapidly that she must have been typing it even before it had been provoked as a response. I protect my boundaries. I have my work to do. You have work too. What about your book? You're so fucking American, Kate shot back. And that was the end of that little chat. Dot, 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 she typed into the text field now, just so that Claire would see the bubbling dance on her end, the promise of contact and then the turning away. Dot, 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 she typed again, and then she slid the phone into her jacket pocket without sending anything. Listlessly, the heifer's tail beat a flat rhythm on the grass as though in sarcastic applause. The cattle should have been sold. The doctor had advised it, and the solicitor had advised it, and Kate had advised it, but her mother would do no such thing. Her husband, she said, would wake up looking for them. And what was she supposed to say to him then? And it was true, at least nominally, that Kate's father had woken up looking for the cattle, early on when he was still in the hospital, 
not long after the consultant had explained how the stroke had interrupted the blood flow to his dominant frontal lobe, he had come to, with a start, shouting what sounded like, Father, 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 which the consultant had taken as a sign of accompanying vascular dementia until Kate's mother had bluntly and efficiently translated. He was saying, Father, 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 father. In other words, complaining, as usual, that the cattle needed to be fed. That was a good sign, the consultant had responded. A continuing interest in habitual activities. A grasp and practice of the verbs central to the patient's daily life. Even an awareness of where things were at in the agricultural year, which just showed how little he knew. Cattle had to be foddered all year round. If Josephine could do it, Kate's mother had said of keeping the animals on, I can do it. Josephine being a celebrated local widow who had not just kept the farm going, but had turned it into a profitable enterprise after her husband's death. Josephine also had business experience, and a son and a daughter with green certs and land which was not bog land, and a herd of cattle which seemed to have been dosed with Valium as well as worming fluid. So docile and orderly were they as they grazed on Josephine's neat green fields. Her mother, vowing to be another Josephine, was like Kate vowing to be another Ivan Boland. But she had kept the place going in fairness, if fairness was what it was. Madness, maybe. She foddered, 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 foddered. And she made the vet appointments and the insemination appointments. Did they even call it AI anymore? Did that not confuse things? And she contracted out the silage and the spreading and anything else that had to be done. She kept the headage payments coming in and she sold the bullocks when they were ready to be sold. She kept her head up. She paid for the help she needed and she took nothing as charity. She broke even. Evenly, she broke. That was a line from an unfinished poem. Claire, the elder millennial, had done everything early. Walked early, talked early, gotten a PhD in comparative biomedical science almost nonsensically early. Ugh, pathetic to be salty about her little sister's precociousness. And Kate didn't really begrudge it all to her. She didn't. The stunning undergraduate performance. So many awards that Kate heard years later, the editor of the local paper had discreetly enforced a ban on new photographs of Claire Locke with curlicute certificates or slabs of Waterford crystal in hand. The full ride to MIT for her postgrad. The photographs of that first New England fall. Trees splashed russet and umber and crimson, taunting blue skies. All that American spaciousness. The highways, the mountain trails, the footpaths that let more than two people come towards each other, near each other, without necessitating an awkward dance. Cambridge to Clare was the Whitehead Institute. Its labs, its robots, its fellow geniuses, its seed funding. To Kate, 
it would have been Brattle Street, Garden Street, Brewster Street. It would have been the seminar room downstairs in Quincy House, where Lowell had held office hours. It would have been ten and a half Appian Way, where Berryman had lived, buying books at the Grolier, reading them in Café Pamplona, looking for Prufrock's sawdust restaurants, writing her poems. Cambridge was where all the poets had been, all the poets who had mattered to Kate when she had been trying to be a poet. Being a poet. You didn't try, you did, or did not. In front of Kate now, the heifer laid her head down on the grass and stared, allowing herself only a slow, dun-lashed blink. Except that she was blinking, Kate would not have thought she was breathing. Her whole body, tail, stomach, spine, was unnaturally still. A fly landed on her udder and traversed it like a tourist. A second landed to imitate it, and a third. On the surface of the stomach's skin, there came a sudden movement, liquid and impatient, but the flies did not budge. The heifer closed her eyes. Kate looked at the time. Nine in the morning in Ann Arbor. She would already be in the lab. What can you feel? Claire said, after she had instructed Kate on how to proceed. What could she feel? The clutch and suck of an animal's meat. Sinew and mucus and bone. Was that bone? No. She was up to her oxter in the birth passage, and what she was feeling was not bone. A hoof, she said excitedly. I found a hoof. Where's the other one? Claire said this irritably, as though Kate had brought the hoof to the pub and left it after her. I don't know, Kate said. There's something. You need to find a second hoof. I'm trying, Kate said, and the heifer shifted against her, pushing back, sucking her more forcefully in on the return, grunting, the heifer, but actually also Kate, with something like resolve. There was now a small, compact smoothness, with the rise of a slope. That was nose, that was a brow cresting upward. A small skull, as finely shaped as a point of jade. Head, Kate said, her fingers splayed on it. Head? I didn't design this calf, Kate said. I'm not responsible for which bits have ended up where. Look for the second hoof. Come on, you don't have much time. I'm looking, Kate said. And she was, searching right, searching left finding only the flesh of the heifer, a rigid, wet wall. Then she brushed something. It sat into her palm like an elbow, hard as a bulb. Again the heifer pushed into her, and as Kate clutched at the bulb, the heifer, the mother, seemed to accept something, or rather decide something, and she pitched forward heaving herself upright, first on her front knees like a pilgrim, then on all fours, 
pulling Kate over and upward with her until they both stood shakily in the bare and yellowed bog field. With the cow standing, the bulb yielded and became a second leg and Kate pushed it forward just an inch or so, enough for it to extend itself and come backward out towards her. And now there were two straight forelegs and a hard little head. And with a huge gush of grey water, the heifer birthed her baby, a nut-brown calf. Arriving stretched and drenched and dressed in a silvery membrane, slick into Kate's guiding hands, and she went with it to the ground and rubbed at its eyes and nostrils and drew the membrane from its head. Well done, Claire was saying into her earpods. Well done, well done. With a grouchy forbearance, the heifer turned and came for her calf. She licked it clean. Now go, Claire said, over the ocean. Now go. There you heard Charlene McKenna read Takugama by Belinda McKeown for Spoken Stories, Creatures of the Earth. Next time, the story Old Fires by Billy O'Callaghan will be read by Pat Short. And you can enjoy all the commissioned fiction of Spoken Stories as they are broadcast on RT Radio 1, all available to on rte.ie forward slash culture and wherever you get your podcasts. From me, Cleon and Ian Loon, thank you for listening.